You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. The U.S. formally establishes its industrial control system cybersecurity initiative, shooting wars in cyberspace, developments in the ransomware criminal markets. This week's iOS update may have closed the vulnerability exploited by NSO Group's Pegasus Intercept tool. The U.S., U.K., and Australia issue a joint advisory on the most exploited vulnerabilities. Abkhazia's crackdown on coin miners. Joe Kerrigan looks at the Mespinosa ransomware gang. And meet Marcy Flores, the Robin Sage of Liverpool Aerobics. From the CyberWire studios at Datatribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Wednesday, July 28, 2021. U.S. President Biden this morning issued a national security memorandum on improving cybersecurity for critical infrastructure control systems. Among other goals, the memorandum seeks to initiate development of baseline cybersecurity goals that are consistent across all critical infrastructure sectors, as well as a need for security controls for select critical infrastructure that is dependent on control systems. The memorandum formally establishes the President's Industrial Control System Cybersecurity Initiative, a voluntary collaborative effort between the federal government and the critical infrastructure community to facilitate the deployment of technology and systems that provide threat visibility, indicators, detections, and warnings. That initiative began informally with electrical grid and pipeline security efforts. Would the next big shooting war begin in cyberspace? President Biden said it might well happen just that way. In a speech delivered yesterday during his visit to the office of the Director of National Intelligence, he said, quote, I think it's more than likely we're going to end up, if we end up in a war, a real shooting war with a major power, it's going to be as a consequence of a cyber breach of great consequence, and it's increasing exponentially, the capabilities, end quote. Video of President Biden's speech was provided by Reuters. It's not a surprising speculation. Cyber operations as the opening phase of a war are probably today roughly the equivalent 
of what calling up reserves and organizing the railroads for mobilization were 125 years ago. There have been some developments in the criminal-to-criminal ransomware markets. First, our evil may have reconstituted and rebranded itself as black matter, although it's difficult to be sure. Forcepoint has found chatter on the high-tier Russian-language illicit forums XSS and Exploit, which suggests Black Matter is Arevil's successor. Black Matter registered itself on July 19th, and two days later they advertised for people willing to sell access to large corporations in Australia, Canada, the UK, and the US. Recorded Future says that Black Matter claims to have incorporated the best, in a criminal sense, of both Our Evil and Darkseid. Our Evil announced its occultation on July 13th, the same day XSS banned Our Evil's spokesman from the forum. Black Matter doesn't openly claim to be either Our Evil Redux or a ransomware operation, and so keeps narrowly within the forum terms and conditions. But the wink-and-nod indirectness in their chatter suggests to Forcepoint that that's indeed who the new group may be. Another ransomware gang that may be the successor of older notorious groups is Haran, whose emergence is described by S2W Lab. Haran's approach incorporates features of both Thanos and Avedon. So far, Haran has publicly claimed only one victim. Cyber intelligence firm Kella this morning released its study of a new Russian language forum that may, researchers think, become a new home for ransomware as a service operations. Called RAMP, the forum made its appearance this month. It too seems to represent an evolution from earlier markets. Kella says, quote, The forum emerged at the domain that previously hosted the Babook ransomware data leak site and later the payload.binary leak site, end quote. RAMP hasn't been a runaway screaming success, but it's attracted some interest. Registration is now closed, but will, Ramp says, reopen in mid-August. It may draw criminal operators looking to work around other forum bans on hawking ransomware. As Kala puts it, if the admins can leverage their competitive advantage of welcoming ransomware-as-a-service programs, chances to grow are fairly high. There's speculation from the register 9to5Mac and others that this week's iOS fix addressed vulnerabilities exploited by NSO Group's Pegasus spyware. In any case, iPhone users would be well advised to apply the update. Zero days may draw a great deal of attention, but a lot of frequently exploited vulnerabilities could be closed by patching. This morning, a joint cybersecurity advisory was issued by the U.S. Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, the Australian Cybersecurity Center, the United Kingdom's National Cybersecurity Center, and the U.S. Federal Bureau of Investigation. You'll recognize them as the FBI. The Allied Services list the top 30 vulnerabilities and briefly outline the mitigations that can be applied to avoid exploitation. Good digital hygiene can go a long way. As the report says, Cyber actors continue to exploit publicly known and often dated software vulnerabilities against broad target sets, including public and private sector organizations worldwide. However, entities worldwide can mitigate the vulnerabilities listed in this report by applying the available patches to their systems and implementing a centralized patch management system. 
Even disputed, partially recognized states struggle with illicit coin mining. Abkhazia, regarded as an independent republic by Russia, Venezuela, Nicaragua, Nara, and Syria, but seen by everyone else as a fractious autonomous region of Georgia, is, as Motherboard reports, conducting almost daily raids to shut down coin mining operations. The raids began in March and have, according to some accounts, taken down almost 1,300 rigs. The miners' offense, fundamentally, is stealing power and stressing the electrical grid. And finally, Robin Sage, meet Marcella Flores. Iranian operators have for some time engaged in catfishing to socially engineer access to targets in the UK, Western Europe, and North America. Proofpoint today published a report on how the threat actor it tracks as TA-456 spent years running a fictitious persona, Marcella Flores, in a campaign designed to install Lempo malware in the machines of a targeted aerospace contractor. Lempo, Proofpoint explains, was designed to establish persistence, perform reconnaissance, and exfiltrate sensitive information. The campaign is probably connected to the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps through its own contractor, the Iranian company Mahak Rayan Afraz. TA-456 is also known as Tortoise Shell and Imperial Kitten. The approach worked as follows. Marcella Flores, Marcy to the would-be friends the catfish was wooing, would begin with apparently benign emails that included what Proofpoint calls a video to establish rapport and build rapport with the intended victim. Another video was described as benign but flirtatious and included a OneDrive link. A second OneDrive link from Marcy represented itself as a diet survey with slacker leet speak and sketchy idiomatic control but a smiling wink emoji. A pro tip... This sort of stuff is not the kind of thing that's normal interchange during professional networking. We mention Robin Sage, and longtime listeners will recall that the fictitious Ms. Sage was a persona created in 2009 by White Hats to test the gullibility of organizations in defense and aerospace, both on the government and the industry side. This mother-of-all-catfish was represented as a 25-year-old analyst at the U.S. Navy's Net Warcom, an MIT graduate with 10 years' experience in the industry. The name Robin Sage was itself a wink. It's the name of a U.S. special operations exercise. Some people were put on their guard by the implausible resume, others by their inability to find her through the phone number in her profiles or an MIT alumni directory, And to their credit, neither the FBI nor the CIA were taken in, but others were. While the winsome but quite non-existent Miss Sage romped across the network for two brisk months, she received job offers from some big and sophisticated corporations and lots of dinner invitations. After the gaff was blown, Robin Sage entered the Hall of Fame of People Who Don't Exist, right beside Bertrand Russell's present King of France. Anywho, back to Marcy. Her profile identified her as an aerobics instructor at the Harbor Health Club in Liverpool. She's probably not the only one used by Iran. Catfish, that is, not Liverpudlian aerobics instructors. As Proofpoint concludes, TI-456's dedication to significant social engineering engagement 
benign reconnaissance of targets prior to deploying malware, and their cross-platform kill chain established TA-456 to be one of the most resourceful Iranian-aligned threats tracked by Proofpoint. The Marcella Flores persona is likely not the only one in use by TA-456, making it important for those working within or tangentially to the defense industrial base to be vigilant when engaging with unknown individuals, regardless of whether it is via work or personal accounts. So friends, watch out for the company you keep. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. And now a word from our sponsor, Sixth Sense. Sixth Sense provides award-winning cloud-based automated endpoint and vulnerability management solutions to streamline IT and security operations. With its advanced platform, businesses gain complete visibility and control over their infrastructure, reducing IT and security risks and optimizing operational efficiency. With Sixth Sense, you'll get real-time alerts, risk-based vulnerability prioritization and remediations, and an intuitive automation and orchestration engine so you can focus on your core business goals, confident in the knowledge that your enterprise is secure, compliant, and running smoothly. To learn why enterprises choose Sixth Sense, visit SixthSense.com. Members of Congress have recently been proposing that the Department of Homeland Security should undertake a study on hacking back, the notion that private organizations could go on the offense in response to cyber intrusions. I recently spoke with Anup Ghosh, CEO of Fidelis Cybersecurity, on the Caveat podcast to get his take on hacking back. Every serious study I have seen has uh, concluded this is a, a bad idea, primarily because attribution of attacks is very hard. Also, oftentimes, uh, attackers use public infrastructure. Um, and so when you're hacking back, uh, you know, you're more likely hurting someone else other than whom you might intend. And, and finally, the consequences of escalation can go very badly uh, for victims. So, you know, from a uh, 
policy perspective, this is a bad idea. And I think uh, anyone who's who studied it has reached the same conclusions. What are the comparisons to, you know, sort of real world uh, crimes? You know, if someone were to kidnap someone or someone were to you know, physically restrict access to a space or a business or something like that, you know, sure. there would be real world reactions there. Yeah, I, I, I think we do have real world analogies here that, that hold up to some extent. So, for example, you know, think about uh, someone breaking into your house, robbing you and um and then later you actually find out you know or you think you find out who it is right well you might be tempted to uh go and try and get back your your stuff and maybe cause some pain on that person we know you know first of all this is illegal second vigilantism uh, typically doesn't end well right and so mm-hmm. you know for these reasons, we do have law. We do have a justice system and law enforcement. And uh, the same holds true in the cyber domain. Uh, we we might think we know who who got at us, but chances are uh, we really don't. And anything we uh, attempt to do against the adversary outside of our own networks can end badly, just like it might in the real world. Yeah, it strikes me too that you know, even though we have um, robust laws for defending your homestead, for example, you know, you're, the Castle Doctrine, um, you're still you're not allowed to to have booby traps all around your property. You know that that sort of thing isn't allowed. Well, you know, I I, I think you bring up a really interesting point, which is you are allowed to defend your property, right? In many states. Uh, what does it stand my ground uh, kind mm. of laws, the castle doctrine, as you mentioned. And, and that's, uh, that actually does uh, create a guide, uh, I think, in the security profession that you are allowed to defend your network, right? And if you do encounter an adversary on your network, you are allowed to engage and counter that adversary. And, and actually, that's that's a discussion we should be having in my mind is not the hack back. It's the detect, respond, counter your adversary on your network. And, and you are allowed to do that by, by law. So, and, and there are different levels of uh, detection and response you can take. You know, active defense is something that is getting more fluency now in security circles um, as, as, a, as a philosophy, as a doctrine, if you will. Do you suppose there there might be a communications gap here? Because as you know, as you and I have been talking about, I think there is that powerful emotional component, and I think sometimes people feel as though they're not being heard. That um, you know they're not seeing a direct and immediate response. And and perhaps if there was a way for uh, law enforcement to say, "Look, we hear you. We see what's going on. Um, you know, we're we're working on it," um, and uh, Trust us, you know that things are being done, even though they might not seem, uh, you know, uh, evident or immediate. Yeah, and I, I don't think you'll really uh, be able to build that trust until we see better results. Um, so, for example, hmm. an individual's business or machine 
being held ransom is not going to get the attention of the FBI, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, But a critical infrastructure that, uh, like Colonial Pipeline, that ends up causing gas lines uh, throughout the East Coast in in the summer, that's going to cause a lot of pain for politicians, uh, for the president in particular. And and we have seen some stronger words come out recently from the Biden administration that it will hold Russia accountable. And I think that is the right strategy going forward. That's Anoop Ghosh from Fidelis Cybersecurity. There's a longer version of our conversation over on the Caveat podcast. Check it out. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And joining me once again is Joe Kerrigan. He's from the Johns Hopkins University Information Security Institute and also my co-host on the Hacking Humans podcast. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dave. Uh, interesting article caught my eye. This is written by Danny Palmer over at ZDNet, and mm-hmm. uh, it is about the ransomware gang Mespinosa, mm-hmm. um, who, you know, we, we over on Hacking Humans, you and I talk about ransomware a lot, and uh, one of the things we followed is kind of the evolution of ransomware, the ratcheting up of ransomware. What, real quick before we dig into this group, you want to just walk us through sort of the you know, where ransomware began and where it, where we are t- right now with it? Right. Ransomware began as a uh, as a way of encrypting individuals' files, right? They yeah. would attack people. They would, uh, in, you know, home users, uh, anybody they could get their hands on. Right. Uh, then ransomware started uh, being able to spread itself, uh, and that gave the ransomware operators the opportunity to go after larger targets, right? So if I can go into an enterprise now and encrypt all of their computers, then... I can demand a larger ransom. And rather than asking Dave Bittner to pay me $200 to un- decrypt his computer, I can ask Supercorp. <laughs> right. <laughs> I can ask Supercorp for millions of dollars and yeah. they might pay it. Yeah. So that's that's a higher rate of return. Uh, eventually, corporations started saying, well, we're just not going to pay the ransom. We have backups. We'll restore from that. It's cheaper. It's faster. It's more ethical. Uh, and then the ransomware guys, not wanting to lose their their revenue streams, started exfiltrating data. Mm. Uh, and that that exfiltration of data then became a essentially a data breach. And they would approach the 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 people who they th- these enterprises and say, not only have we encrypted your data, but we've also exfiltrated it and we have it here. Uh, and if you don't pay us, you can restore your own data, that's fine, but we're going to publish or sell this other data. Right. You know, you, we're going to publish or sell what we stole. Yeah. Uh, and that's been pretty effective. Well, there's a new tactic from this Mespinoza group that is they go through the data that they've exfiltrated 
and they look for evidence of criminal activity, which they then use to ratchet up the the demand for um, for the ransom. So let's say I'm an organization and I fear I, I've been having interactions with my law firm or right. my legal team or yep. my in-house lawyers, and I'm saying, "Hey, I think we may have a, a, an exposure here. You know, maybe we didn't do things right. Maybe who knows what it is. Right? But it's a it's a problem, and I don't want anybody to know about it. And there's potential legal problems here. Right? Mespinoza does what? They use that as a factor in the double extortion. Hmm. So. I've said often that you should not let uh, the fact that that these guys have exfiltrated your data influence the calculus on whether or not you pay the ransom. That's been my advice and my stance. Okay. Uh, and my reasoning for that is you're dealing with criminals. You really don't have any reason to trust them. Right. Uh, there's no. There's actually evidence to the contrary that they're going to keep the data in, in confidential. They're going to uh, publish or sell it anyway, or they're going to come back and demand more money. Right. Uh, all that stuff happens. Uh, and you, you've still suffered a data breach. That has still happened. Uh, mm-hmm. By paying them off and getting them to agree to silence, you have not eradicated a data breach. That has still occurred. But now, if they go through the data and they see the evidence of some illegal activity, now they're going to say, oh, and by the way, not only are we going to disclose this data, but we might also notify law enforcement about this piece of information, right. whatever it is you found. It's the same tactic, but it's a new angle on that tactic that would make a vulnerable organization much more likely to pay up. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Much more embarrassing and, uh, well, you know, potentially legal legal implications as well. Right. Yeah. Not only now are you, are you dealing with the, the legal problems of a data breach, but now you're dealing with legal problems of past activity that may or may not have been illegal. And in fact— the, the information or the, the activity may not be illegal. It may just be something that you were like, okay, we have to mitigate this, right? Mm-hmm. Or it may be something you've already taken care of and there, there, there's no more concern about it. But you do not want that information becoming public and you don't want it, certainly don't want law enforcement knowing about it. Yeah. Right? Uh, that's just more motivation. What about ways to take the, uh, the, the, the sting out of data exfiltration? In other words... We hear about folks talking about encrypting all of your data at rest. So is that, is that effective? Is that practical? What do you think? It's effective and practical. Uh, you just got to make sure that you don't give these guys the access at some point in time because uh, mm. they're still going to go after that. You know, if somebody in- exfiltrates a bunch of encrypted data, you can tell them, well, go pound sand. You know, that data's encrypted. Good luck, good luck finding the keys for it. Right. Uh, but if, they, if they're smart enough and they're good enough, and this group is uh, – I think Unit 42 calls them highly disciplined. Yeah. Right? They're, they're a, they know what they're doing. They're pretty good, and nobody knows where they're operating out of. Mm-hmm. So that's that's impressive that nobody knows where they're operating out of, and they've been doing this for over a year. Mm-hmm. Um, so if they do exfiltrate encrypted data, that that kind of mitigates that that problem. And and then you you technically have not suffered a data breach. Mm-hmm. Uh, but these guys, are what they're doing is, is fairly standard. They're getting in to enterprise computer systems via remote desktop protocol or RDP. Yeah. Uh, and the article says they don't know if they're using brute force or if they're uh, fishing for credentials. My money is on fishing. I'll mm. bet they're fishing for credentials because that's fairly easy and inexpensive to do. It's not a lot of overhead. Yeah. And it produces pretty good results. Yeah. Um, yeah. Pretty effective. Right. So once they get in, they they also install backdoors of their own making, uh, which is devastating and very hard to get rid of. I mean, you're you're going to have to go through and 
do all kinds of scanning of your network and every single endpoint on that network to find everything that they've put in there. Right, right. And these guys are very good at maintaining their presence. So best thing to do to mitigate this is before you suffer the data breach, before you actually, before you suffer the, the, uh, the credential leaking is to implement multi-factor authentication on your re- remote desktop protocol. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Uh, and if you're uh, worried about uh, crimes you may have committed, encrypt your conversations about that. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I guess maybe we could back up and say, don't do crimes. Yeah, yeah. You, you could do that. <laughs> don't do crimes. All right. Well, Joe Kerrigan, thanks for joining us. It's my pleasure, Dave. that's the cyberwire for links to all of today's stories check out our daily briefing at the cyberwire.com the cyberwire podcast is proudly produced in maryland out of the startup studios of data tribe where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies our amazing cyberwire team is trey hester elliot peltzman peru prakash justin sabi tim nodar joe kerrigan Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now a word from our sponsor, SpyCloud, the leader in operationalizing cybercrime analytics. Traditional threat intelligence is a thing of the past. Cyber criminals are stealing vast amounts of credentials, session cookies, and financial data every day, and it's hard to keep up. SpyCloud is the trusted partner businesses turn to to fully understand their darknet exposure risk and neutralize threats before it's too late. SpyCloud alerts your organization as soon as an employee or customer's data appears on the dark net, so you can act faster than bad actors to prevent cyber attacks like ransomware, session hijacking, account takeover, and online fraud. With insights from the industry's largest repository of recaptured data, protect the digital identities and systems most important to your business. Get your free corporate darknet exposure report at spycloud.com slash cyberwire and see what information criminals have in their hands today. That's spycloud.com slash cyberwire.